The talk is mostly about equanimity. Where I grew up, outside of Boston, uh, the Boston Marathon um, happens. And as a little girl, I would see these runners coming by on their way to the end of this 26-mile run. And toward the end of the run, and there's a big hill. Just at the very end, it's pretty flat, and then you can imagine running for many, many miles and then seeing this huge hill. And it's called Heartbreak Hill. We're at Heartbreak Hill. We hit it. <laughs> and the weather kind of plays a part in it, you know. <laughs> it's not really these beautiful snowflakes coming down from heaven, you know. It's rainy, icy, and, you know, it's that darkness at the end of November. It's an interesting time of the retreat because, in many ways, we have so much time. And in other ways, we can just feel that feeling of the end. Uh, and on many levels, people would give their eye teeth to have the next amount of time to sit. And you know in your life how many times you've had that sense of having so much time, like 15 days. Oh, it's so much time. And yet, if you've been sitting six weeks or three months, it's a different perspective. So on a relative level of reality, we can feel that ending coming, and then how do we have balance with that? On an absolute level of reality, nothing changes. There'll just be more seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. And it's really important to remember that, that in some levels nothing changes. But on the relative level of reality, um, you'll experience some change. And I find this point in this retreat, um, it's an art, Heartbreak Hill, learning how to have balance with it. And it's really about balancing with endings. You know, how do we relate to endings? Um, and we all have a different way that we relate to contact and separation. Uh, the longer we do a retreat, the more intensive heartbreak hill is. One can learn to be very mindful and equanimous with this part of the retreat. Uh, and it's just having a perspective on what's happening, how it's happening. And so we might have judgments that come up at this point in the retreat, like, you know, am I complete with this experience? Do I want more? What is it that I want more of? You know, these are good questions. Did I get enough? Is there a range of fear and excitement? Do we have this feeling of stepping on the gas? Or do we step on the brakes? You know, how we relate to endings will really be how we relate to this time in the practice. 
One of the things that I find really interesting is the kind of pressure we put on ourselves when we have the pressure of what we think of as time on our backs, you know, or on our shoulders. You know, when is it that we feel that there isn't enough time? What is this illusion of ending anyway? And often when we have a pressure of time, it's really when we're out of the present moment. It's really when we're ahead of ourselves, we're caught in the future rather than in the moment. Uh, So at this time in the retreat, it's so interesting to watch that gap between, you know, what we think of as moving into the future and what we've been learning about being in the moment, you know, and how easy it is to come back when we remember that. And it's wonderful to know that ease of being in the moment even when we do feel the pressure of time. You know, that's so important in our life. So at this point in the retreat, I'd encourage you to really not to try to figure anything out, um, but to really use the preciousness of the time left. Use it wisely in whatever way that has meaning for you. And whatever process you're in, you know, wherever we are in the process of this retreat, that's where we're meant to be. And to really let that process ripen and deepen. We often talk about the kind of arrogance we have around time, you know, thinking that you know, we might plan other retreats that we might go on after this retreat, you know, as a way to soothe ourselves about the ending. You know, but that's really a kind of arrogance. You know, we really don't know if we'll be alive at the end of this talk. You know, and it, it's, it's just a total illusion to think otherwise. And in many ways, that thought that we have more time really keeps us from living. You know, it makes us very complacent, thinking, well, I'll do the next three-month retreat and the next. Of course, we might have those plans, but when we really don't get that, <laughs> that might not be true. You know, does it, does it put us to sleep, jumping into the future like that? Or can we wake up and say, well, I don't know. We don't really know. And to be able to really face that not knowing and use it as a way to use our time wisely. And it's not meant to be something that we tighten up and try to get in the moment by going, oh, I don't have enough time, I've got to use my time wisely. That isn't relaxing. You know, that is just relaxing into the moment and letting this process just unfold wherever we are. One of the things I think it's so hard to see at this point in the retreat is any perspective on the momentum you have. And of course, we can see it as teachers, you know, that there's so much momentum from being here for so long that when you notice that you do get caught in the future, remember that 
you might feel like you go off the rails, you know, that there's a feeling of kind of being on the roller coaster at the end. But know that when you come back, you really come back. And there's a deepening of this process at this point that's incredibly breathtaking and remarkable. You know, and it's very hard to have a, res- a perspective on it at this point. Uh, but <laughs> all I can say is that you're so lucky, you know, to have this amount of momentum behind you. It's, it, it's so unusual in this world. It's so rare. You know, it's just amazing to think that we've all been here together so long. So the instruction is the same no matter what, whether it's a five-year course, a two-day course, a beginner's class. It's like, can we be with our moment-to-moment experience? Uh, And it's just that simplicity of trying to be here in this moment, you know, not the next moment, with whatever's there. And with this presence that brings us more and more deeply into that moment without taking it personally, like that deep connection and disidentification. One thing that we might think at times is that uh, we might not be able to deepen our concentration at this point, but we can. You know, it can deepen a lot. One of my uh, favorite quotations from Dogen um, speaks of this stillness of mind that's possible to deepen at any moment of time. He said, gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflecting in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water disturbed although its light is extensive and great. The moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch across. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass, in one drop of water. The whole moon and the whole sky can be reflected in one drop of water. And that water is the present moment. You know, when we really have that ability to just sink into the moment, whatever that is, um, it's, it's like a completion. That's the completion. That's the freedom that can happen. And it can happen in one moment. It's like it's only possible in one moment. It's not possible five minutes from now if we think and jump into the future. It's only possible now. So this kind of stillness is something that we don't necessarily have to have momentum for. You know, it's like often with samadhi or concentration, we'll have a fear of losing it. Uh, But in this context of mindfulness, of momentary concentration, that ability to have a moment of stillness can happen at any point in time. Of course, momentum helps and deepens this, 
Uh, but please know that it can happen any moment, five years from now, when you're in the airport, you know, when you're at the bank. It's, it's not dependent on time. Uh, so when we get a sense of the beauty of this stillness and simplicity of the practice, we really do learn to take one breath at a time and one step at a time. And whatever one landscape of fear or anticipation at a time. Uh, and when we have the sense that in a moment of mindfulness we're truly free of mental torment. You know, it's so amazing what we're doing here to know that we have that potential in a moment for that kind of completion or stillness and that it's that simple. So in a long retreat, as we learn to awaken to one step or one breath, we really learn to take each moment of our lives one at a time, each day at a time. And this brings us more and more ease, more and more well-being and more and more joy. So please don't underestimate that power of momentary concentration of this deep stillness that the whole moon and the whole sky can be reflected in one moment. Another way that that's presented is when the uh, surface of a pond is still we can see into the whole depth of the pond, as well as the sky being reflected. You know, that, that image is representing that totality of experience or the completion of understanding when we're truly here in a moment. So understanding, that full understanding comes from that momentary concentration, being f fully there in that moment. What's also interesting about this momentary concentration is that when we start to understand it, we don't feel like there's any hurry. You know, so that even when we feel the pressure of some kind of ending, uh, we don't buy into that uh, jumping into the future. That we know that this process uh, very deeply means that there is no hurry when we're in the moment, because we're there. There's nowhere else to get to. You know, where are we trying to get to in our practice? Well, hopefully here. <laughs> it's funny, really, you know, when you think of all the times that we try so hard to get somewhere and it's really just getting here in this moment. Uh, but it is elusive because of this minor detail called the reacting mind. <laughs> when we really believe a moment of aversion or we really believe a moment of wanting. So in this perspective of that there's no hurry when we really deeply just arrive in the moment, we do learn to relax. And we know that you can't, it's like we can't push or force non-judgmental attention. 
And if we put the pressure of time on ourselves, it's like it disturbs that dewdrop of water or disturbs the surface of the water. It's like buying into the past or the future. In relationship to things having um, no pressure of time, uh, my mother died when I was 13 years old. And I went to see her grave again this past week. And I've only been one other time a few years ago. You know, so when I look at that, you know, when I went this time, it was like, wow, you know, I've only been here twice in 34 years. You know, it just blows my mind that it's been such a painful thing for my family. No one else in my family has gone. You know, I'm the only one who even makes it there. Um, and just to see that lonely little grave with that lonely little name on it. Um, and the first time I went after she died, which was a few years ago, it felt like driving there was like driving so many miles. It seemed so far away off the road. And this time I went, and it was literally three minutes off the road that I drive a lot to my father's house. You know, <laughs> it was like I was able to be there more this time, and I really just thought, wow, this is just a little jump off the road, and I found it. Um, and I brought, I don't know if you know the plant milkweed, but at this time of year, milkweed um, plants have these seed pods that are really beautifully fuzzy, uh, and they float in the wind. And their seed pods are full of these uh, pods, so that if you shake them, hundreds and thousands, if you have enough of them, come out in these beautiful white puffs. Uh, so my idea it was that it would be sunny and that there'd be <laughs> these rainbow puffs um, when I went, but it was raining and icy. But what was interesting was that because it was icy, uh, the seed pods stuck to the grave and all around it so that the more I shook, they were just um, building up and building up like it was just covered with these white puffs all over. Uh, and it felt like, yes, you know, there is no hurry. You know, I could be there this time in a way of really touching her spirit at that point in time when she died, before she died, and wherever she is in a new form at this point. It was like a, it was like a ceremony of acceptance of what happened. I took 34 years. But in a way, it's like a snap of the fingers in time. And so we really have to trust that we can only be where we are and that there's no hurry in that. You know, that we can stay as long as we want to <coughs> on one step. And there's no reason to take another step until we're ready. It's okay to stay on the step as long as we want. So in the timeless world, it's never too late for anything. When stillness of mind or heart happens at times, and then courageous 
energy or a courageous heart meets that stillness, uh, that means that we have the courage to face whatever is happening. And when that courageous heart is sustained, uh, we call that joyful interest or rapture. It's that joyful interest in whatever's happening. And this kind of rapture or joy means that that joy or interest is not just in pleasure. It's, it's a joyful interest in whatever's peer appearing. You know, so we need that stillness or momentary concentration and then the courage to face what it is that's appearing. Courageous heart. Uh, and then when that courageous heart is sustained, we can have this joyful interest, or interest, maybe it's not so joyful, but it can have an interest in anything, in whatever appears, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this energized interest uh, makes it possible to be open to the reactive mind, to aversion or attachment, or doubt, or fear, or that thinking is happening. We have a friend in New Zealand that after a three-month retreat, he went home to the country side of where he lives in New Zealand, and he had to haul some stuff uh, from his um, place to somewhere else, and he got a trailer that wasn't legal, it didn't have you know, I guess, like license plates, like here. Uh, And so he was hauling this um, trailer on the back of his car along this country road, and he was speeding. So at some point, a police officer stopped him. Uh, So he had just finished a three-month retreat. (laughs) And the policeman said to him, you were speeding. And he said, you're absolutely right. Give it to me, officer. (laughs) And then he said, and your trailer is illegal. And he said, you're absolutely right. Give it to me, officer. (laughs) And this wasn't fake. You know, it was like, you know, you can fake these things and they know, you know. But he was so genuine. He was so humble and so accepting and so equanimous the officer let him go. <laughs> Sometimes when my own practice or mind or heart are, are quiet um, and there's that balance of mindfulness, equanimity, stillness of mind, um, And I'm feeling that intention, that deep intention for purification, that I really feel that desire to be free and want the purification, whatever it is, to happen. In my mind, this thought will come right in that stillness. Give it to me, officer. (laughs) There's that feeling of, you know, there's that genuineness of really asking for whatever I need to be liberated with to appear, even though I know that might be really painful. Um, But I know that that's the process. Hopefully we have that sense at times that 
even when it's difficult, even when the most painful things in the body or mind appear, that that's why we're here, you know, that it's part of the purification process. One of my um, most wonderful memories is seeing Martin Luther King on a film um, after he had done a lot of work in the south of this country, he went to Chicago. And all he did was organize a march to walk through the streets of Chicago in the heat of the summer. Um, and he was interviewed, you know, in this film, you know, he was in a helicopter having been airlifted out of this situation. Uh, and there were, it was one of the worst situations he'd ever been in. There were snipers everywhere and gunshots, so much violence. Uh, and the interviewer was so amazed that um, Martin Luther King had chosen to walk through the streets of Chicago in the heat of the summer, and he just said to him, the question was, you know, why are you doing this? You know, what are you doing? And Martin Luther King just gave him this huge smile and he said, you know, all we're doing is bringing the evil out into the open. But with such joy, you know, it's just like saying, give it to me, officer. You know, it's like such joy that we have this opportunity to be so fortunate to do this process. You know, thank you. Sometimes the purification is so gentle and distant and quiet. And it's like we're watching the mind identify just with a thought. Maybe it's a whisper of a thought. Maybe there's a whisper of a thought. You know, this retreat's been great, but I really want to be enlightened. You know, maybe there's just that whisper of a thought. Um, and you know when you're outside and it's a beautiful clear day, except there that might be this teeny tiny cloud that comes in front of the sun. Even the teeniest tiny cloud can block the sun. Well, when we have the tiniest whisper of thought happen and we bite it for it, we believe it, you know, we're lost. Even though it's the most distant, quiet, gentle little whisper of a thought, in that moment, we're not free. Uh, but what's so elusive for us is to know that there's no need to get rid of that thought. You know, we don't have to get rid of the thought, I want more, or I want to be enlightened. In fact, as you get quiet, that thought will appear. You know, we will want more. We sniff that there might be more. Uh, and it's part of learning how to work with the space is to let that thought come and go. It's just wanting. It's just like any thought. We don't have to believe it. And actually the appearing of that thought is part of the purification. You know, that wanting freedom uh, is attachment. And it has a deep root and it will appear as we get deep in the practice. It's part of the landscape.
So often we think we have to get rid of these things to be free rather than to let them come and go. And that's part of the deepening of the equanimity itself. Whether we're wanting a chocolate or to go home or three more months of practice or a peak experience in practice or whatever, it's all just wanting. You know, it doesn't matter what it is that we're wanting. That's not the problem. It's that we haven't seen that wanting thought clearly. That's the only problem. So the thoughts aren't the problem. It's just that we've believed one that's the problem. And again, be careful of feeling like you're in a hurry or that you have to get rid of it. Settle back when that happens rather than jump forward. Settle back. No hurry. Let the thought complete itself. You might get the thought, I want, and clench down in it because you think, I don't want, I want. You know, it can get so subtle. And if you could just settle back and just say, oh, it's okay. It's just a thought. It's no problem. And we get free in that moment through seeing the attachment, through seeing the wanting mind. So purification, or give it to me, officer, or bringing the evil out in the open can have this very light, gentle, um, subtle um, appearance. It can also be more difficult or more intense. I'd like to read from the indispensable Calvin and Hobbes. A little, um, a little neighbor boy read this to me last night. It's when um, we still had some snow. You, most of you probably know, uh, just for you who don't know, um, Calvin is a little boy and Hobbes is his um, stuffed animal, a tiger that um, he has a great relationship with. And his name is Hobbes. So this is Hobbes, the t- tiger. Wow, you've made a lot of snowmen today. And Calvin says, yep, they're effigies. Each one represents someone I hate. When the sun comes out, I'll watch... (laughs) I'll watch their features slowly melt down, their dripping bodies until they're nothing but noses and eyes floating in pools of water. Hobbes, I wasn't aware you even knew this many people. (laughs) Calvin, the ones I really hate are small, so they'll go faster. (laughs) Then there's a picture of Calvin with hundreds of small snowmen. And he, you know, he changes into a monster, stomping them all. <laughs> Calvin can teach us how to let ourselves um, open to the difficult. So maybe we can let ourselves really hate everything when that's what's there. 
or really let a black hole appear where we feel completely disconnected or a desolate desert. So learning how to experience these experiences with balance rather than reaction is also part of the purification process. Often when we have the question in our mind, say when loneliness appears or hating everything appears, you know, why is this happening? Why was I born into this world when the world is like this? That why usually keeps us distant from the experience. When we ask ourselves, what is it that's happening? My first shift like this would be to go from, what am I going to do with all this loneliness, to maybe I can try experiencing it. And usually that question, what am I going to do with all this loneliness, um, it was like you can hear the aversion in it. Uh, But it would be very different from why. Why to what? And then usually there's an acceptance like, oh, if we can get to what am I going to do with it, we can generally jump to, oh, maybe I can try experiencing it. Or maybe I can try experiencing hating everything. And there's a potential for connecting with the experience, but also disidentifying with it. It's not that we're saying connect with the experience and believe it. We're not saying connect with the black hole and believe it. We're saying connect with the whatever it is that's difficult and then see if you can not take it personally, to let it live itself out and go. The reason that these things are so hard is because they're stuck. We don't know how to experience them. So they can't move. They can't change. They stay so solid out of the aversion or fear of the experience. These more difficult or intense experiences, some of them are karmic knots or pains in the body. And we're meant to work with some of these over a lifetime. It's like we took birth with karmic knots. It's like they're old friends that we really learn anatta from. We really learn anicca from. We really learn dukkha from karmic knots. And usually, again, we have this whole idea that we get rid of them and then we're free. I had a friend years ago in practice that I started sitting with years ago. He'd always come up to me and say, you know, if I could just get rid of this pressure in my head, I'd be enlightened. You know, it was just he couldn't let go of that idea that it had to be gone before he could be free. And freedom has nothing to do with getting rid of these things. It has to do with being able to accept them, connect with them, let them come and go, and not take them personally. If we really have that deep acceptance, there's absolutely no reason to get rid of them. If we really see something clearly, you don't have to get rid of it. 
The Buddha taught that a thought is just a thought. A feeling is just a feeling. And a sensation is just a sensation. A thought is just a thought. It's not mine. A karmic knot is just a karmic knot. It's not mine. When we get the sense of that we can liberate ourselves through what's appearing, when it's something difficult, that joyful interest is so joyful because we know that even though something's painful, we can connect with it and we cannot take it personally. And it's such a great achievement when the courageous heart, stillness of mind, joyful interest, mindfulness, equanimity, when they come together, um, we can work with anything. We can work with betrayal. We can work with fear of rejection. We can work with lust. We can work with anything. Pablo Neruda has a poem called Ode to the Plum. And it's very long, so I won't read it all. But he starts with um, being a young boy on old roads surrounded by plum trees on horseback. And these plums he calls Um, he says that life gives these plums an oval clarity. You know, so he goes a long time describing being a child on horseback with these plums and um, the light inside the plums that transform him. Uh, but then he ages in the poem and he says, Maybe I have changed. I am not that child riding a horse along spiraling mountain roads. Maybe more than a scar or the burn of age or life, my forehead, heart, and soul have been transformed. But again, again, I return to being that wild young boy when I raise a plum in my hand with such inner shine It seems to me that I hold up to the heavens the sparkles of Earth's birthday, the flowering of fruit and the loving celebration of its delights. If at this hour, whatever it may be, something substantial as bread or a dove or bitter as the betrayal of a friend I raise to you a plum, and with it, in its little cup of amethyst amber and fragrant thickness, I drink and make a toast to life in your honor, whoever you are, wherever you're going. I do not know who you are, but I am leaving a plum in your heart. If at this hour, whatever it may be, something substantial as bread or a dove or bitter 
as the betrayal of a friend, I raise to you a plum. The betrayal of a friend is one of the most painful things we can experience. And the connecting with eating bread, you know, it's so earthy, it's so mothering and nurturing. It's like two completely opposite experiences. And yet, he raises a plum to both. You know, can our hearts hold both with equanimity? with this balance, unconditional acceptance, or peace. Equanimity has this capacity to allow us to be okay with whatever is happening, this range of experience. Sometimes you hear us mention the phrase, not doing. Not doing means that we're not reacting to that range of experience, from that bitterness to that nourishment. We're not reacting with aversion to unpleasantness. We're not reacting with attachment to pleasure. When mindfulness and equanimity are strong, greed, hatred, and delusion aren't present. And we don't need to make anything happen in a particular way. There's no need to get anything. There's no need to get rid of anything. There's that completion possible in a moment. There's no struggle. There's peace. So when equanimity is present, there's no need to struggle with the breath, or the body, or with emotions, or with pain, or with fear, with existence, or with non-existence with birth or death, with knowing or not knowing. We don't struggle with non-duality or duality, with not doing or doing, with enlightenment or non-enlightenment. Whatever is happening is completely okay. When I... um, did a two-week retreat in 1975, after which I came on staff here. And then my next retreat, um, the people I was with, staff with, all chipped in so I could do a retreat, a month-long retreat, after I was on staff, because I couldn't afford it in Wales. And it was a big thing for me to leave New England and to go to Wales to do this month-long retreat. I was quite allergic to um, the mildewy, moldy rooms and rugs. Uh, But I kept practicing, and I was doing pretty well. But at some point, this huge purification happened, and my body just got covered with eczema. And I was just all over oozing (laughs) sores, and uh, it was pretty intense. And in retrospect, it could have been possible uh, to bring a non-doing awareness to the situation. But I was pretty green and new at the practice. 
uh, and the teacher of the retreat had to bring me to the doctor. Uh, it's interesting when we think of equanimity, not doing doesn't mean that sometimes we don't take action. Not doing doesn't mean passivity. Equanimity and mindfulness makes it possible for us to make a skillful response to a situation with care, with an appropriate action. So equanimity isn't indifference. But not doing, in this case, could have been not reacting to having to leave the retreat. You know, it could have been not reacting to the fear of losing the concentration or the fear of this teacher being repelled by the monster in the car seat <laughs> or, the, or the fear of putting the teacher out of his way. You know, my mind was a complete mess on the way to the doctor. Uh, there was such fear of so much loss and I was struggling so hard and reacting. By the time I went to the doctor and came back in the car, equanimity had appeared. You know, it's like there was much less struggle, much more mindfulness, more ease. I didn't understand it. It's like I couldn't have spoken in words what happened. But I started to get a sense of that, what that imperturbability is, what that peace of the practice really is all about. That trip to the doctor did so much for my practice. It's like I thought it was going to be a huge obstacle, but it taught me so much about equanimity. What I thought was an interruption of my practice taught me about letting go of any fixed idea or model I had about the practice. It brought real peace rather than fake peace. When mindfulness and equanimity are present, we do see thoughts just as thoughts, sensations just as sensations, feelings just as feelings. And that non-reactive mind lets us let go of control. And it's a voluntary letting go of control because it comes out of seeing so clearly. And the happiness and peace are really not tied to the pleasure-pain syndrome. They're not tied to experience. Often, on a long retreat, we get to, to taste sometimes the tastelessness of experience. I know it does go on and on and on. Uh, and out of that seeing the tastelessness of experience, there can be a real deep letting go of control of life. We can be lost in this moment-to-moment -moment change. We can react to moment-to-moment -moment change or we can be at peace with it. Another aspect of this simplicity of the practice is that we're either lost in what's happening or we're at peace with it. Those are the only two choices. We're lost or at peace.
we can also be pretty equanimous with reacting to reacting. Now, it's possible to notice that we're lost and to be able to step back and just say, lost. <laughs> it's not me, it's not mine, it's just the reacting mind. When we can do that, we really start to taste contentment in our life. When there's that much acceptance, when we don't take this process of being lost or peaceful personally anymore. And we know that until we're fully enlightened, that that's going to happen. You know, there's such a deep acceptance and trust of the process that we know there's the presence of peace more and more as we put in our time. And that's all that really matters. It's just that continuing trust in this process of awakening. So at Heartbreak Hill, you know, we might feel like it gets a little more intense, you know. An intense retreat can get more intense. Uh, it might not. Uh, but remember that there's just the same old stuff happening. You know, there's the ups and downs in ener of energy. There's the get letting lost, getting lost in past and future. And it's all just disappearing particles. There's no me or I or mine that it's happening to. And we can go easy in the saddle, use our time wisely. We do never know what's going to happen, but please don't put off freedom in any moment. You know, the freedom can happen any moment. Please don't succumb to the pressure of time or the illusion of time. It can be a bigger fire at the end. If we go with this process, there's a deepening of the purification, even more so at the end, because there's so much momentum. It's like, give it to me, officer. You know, really let the evil come out in the open. Really let it happen. Let freedom ring. Why put it off? You might never get a chance to make it through the night. The great Japanese hermit poet Ryokan left a deathbed, deathbed poem. He said, and I'll end with this, what shall be my legacy? And think about what shall be your legacy for this retreat here at IMS. What are we leaving here? Do we leave a trace of anything? Do we want to leave any trace of anything? What shall be my legacy? The blossoms of spring the cuckoo in the hills, the leaves of autumn. So maybe here in New England we leave the lisping tinkle of the chickadees, the snowflakes, 
the beaver in the pond, the glorious leaves of autumn. Let's sit for a minute. You're absolutely right. Give it to me, officer. Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.